Well, good morning once again. Those of you from CRPC and any visitors, uh, I'm, I've really enjoyed being with you this weekend, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, bringing God's word this morning. Uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49, uh, I'm going to focus on verses 1 through 6, but I'm going to read all the way through 13 and perhaps reference stuff up to verse 13. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 49, starting at verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word you've given us this morning, and we pray that you would help us to understand it, open our minds and open our hearts, that we might be fed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, perhaps one of the most memorable scenes in the hit comedy, The Office, is the scene with Kevin's chili. And if you don't know the scene, <clears throat> uh, it starts with an interview with Kevin where he talks about his famous chili and how he stays up all night uh, pre pressing garlic and cutting up tomatoes. Uh, and Kevin's not a character who gets a lot of wins in the show. But he says, this is the one thing I'm good at. 
And as we hear this interview go on, the camera cuts to him bringing this large pot of chili into the office early in the morning when nobody else is there. But as he's walking into the office, disaster strikes. He drops the chili, and it goes all over the floor. And we see him in agony trying to scoop the chili back into the pot. But he's just getting chili all over himself and spreading it farther around. What makes this scene so comical and also so heartbreaking at the same time is to see that all that work goes for nothing. It's to see Kevin receive no reward for his labor. Life is like that sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes diligence and hard work end up being completely futile. And that's the experience that's being communicated in our passage today. Uh, in the surrounding chapters, the prophet Isaiah has talked about this servant who's going to come. And here in this passage, it's the servant who's speaking. It's somewhat mysterious, <coughs> excuse me, it's somewhat mysterious who this servant is. I'm going to come back to that at the end of my ser sermon. But as we look at the servant's experience here today and what it can teach us, I want us to see three points. First, the servant laments the emptiness of his work. The servant laments the emptiness of his work. Second, the servant holds on to his faith. The servant holds on to his faith. And then in point three, we'll come back to that question of who really is this servant? Okay, so point one, the servant laments the emptiness of his work. So in these verses, the servant is telling a story. Uh, the servant starts by summoning the coastlands to listen to him. In the first promises about the servant, way back in Isaiah 42, Isaiah told us that the servant's mission was not just going to be to Israel, but it was going to be, he was going to be a light to the nations, and the coastlands would wait for his law. Uh, this word for coastlands, it really sort of means islands. Uh, it was a word that the peoples of the eastern Mediterranean would refer to the folks who uh, came across the sea from the west. But over time, it got sort of a larger signification of the edge of the world as they could imagine it. So when we hear about the coastlands, this is really the ends of the earth. This isn't just the nations that are close to Israel, but the people from far, far away. The point is the servant's call extends not just to Israel, not just to our neighbors, but all the way to the ends of the earth. And this whole passage is framed as the servant telling the story of his relationship with God to these nations for their benefit. In other words, he's being a witness. He is, it is just what he's been called to do, along with the rest of God's people. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen. So we have to imagine all of these verses as story time. Uh, the nations are gathering around, and the servant is going to share his experience. It's a lot like some of those psalms of testimony that we sometimes read in the Psalter, where an individual, after he's been delivered by God, will go to the temple and share with everybody about what God has done in his life and about what he's learned through the experience. The servant begins his story at the beginning. The Lord called him as his servant right from birth. Unlike Isaiah or Moses or Abraham, who uh, are just going about their adult lives at some point when God breaks in and calls them, uh, the servant's entire life is dedicated to God's calling. 
And God prepares the servant to be his secret weapon. He's, he's like a razor-sharp sword or a polished arrow. This is sort of reminiscent of the kind of royal propaganda that Assyrian or Babylonian kings would use. They'd often describe themselves as the weapon of the gods. But perhaps paradoxically, uh, against that very violent military background, it's actually the servant's mouth which is the weapon. Did you notice that? Is this is not going to be about literal military might. The servant's not going to be like the king Isaiah mentions a little earlier in the book, this guy named Cyrus, who just keeps conquering all of these nations. Rather, it's his teaching that is powerful. This fits the other places in these chapters, which always emphasize that it's the servant's teaching and just legal decisions that are going to go out into the whole world and all the nations. So it's also fitting that God's preparation of the servant involves speaking to him. God tells him about his special identity and calling. He says, you are my servant. Being a servant might not sound particularly fancy, but if you're the servant of a king, that's actually a great honor. How much more to be the servant of the Lord? God also calls him Israel. In, in some way, the whole nation of Israel is summed up in this individual person. And he says that in him, God is going to be glorified. This is actually a slightly less common Hebrew word for glory here. It focuses us on the picture of glory as visible light. Isaiah 40 had promised that all flesh will see God's glory. And it seems that it's through this servant that God's light is going to shine in a radiant and beautiful way. Well, so far, this all sounds really wonderful, doesn't it? But then we have the plot conflict. Now the servant speaks up, and he reveals that he is in anguish. He says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Here we have some of the terms for nothing that we talked about. This week we have emptiness, void, and vapor. Elsewhere, they describe the life of someone who doesn't worship God. These people who build their life around hollow idols and then find out that their lives have also been hollowed out as well. But that's not what's going on here. This is the servant. He's a faithfully following God. He's living his life in an intimate relationship with God. He's following God's calling for his life. And yet, still, his life is marked by nothingness. The servant highlights the drudgery of his task. He's wearied himself. He's spent his strength. Uh, it doesn't seem like we're in this moment where we're soaring like an eagle with ever-renewed strength seems like we're waiting for it at this point. And what's more, all of the work he's doing seems to have no payoff. It's just producing emptiness and void, and it's like a vapor that just passes away as soon as it comes into existence. Just as we find modeled for us in the Psalms, the servant's very honest with God about all of this. He doesn't sugarcoat his experience. He tells it like it is. And the fact that the servant's experience is infected with nothingness is a massively important biblical truth for us to understand. 
Because without this, or without the other suffering servant passages, we might be tempted to think that life with God would be a cakewalk. After all, we hear so much in these chapters, don't we, about how life with God brings renewed strength and joy. And so we might conclude that living in faithful dependence on God will put us beyond the reach of emptiness and nothingness in our lives. Come to Jesus, we might say, and all of your problems will be solved. But the Bible has actually a lot to say against this sort of over-simple view of the Christian life. It's the central problem of the book of Job, isn't it? Job's friends believe that his suffering proves that he must be a sinner, and he must be kicking orphans in the teeth somewhere. They haven't seen it, but they infer it. But God corrects them. Actually, Job isn't suffering because of his sin. He's a righteous sufferer. He's actually suffering because he's been following God. That's what made him a target for Satan in the beginning. The book of Ecclesiastes has a similar message. Uh, Sometimes people read Ecclesiastes as being about how empty life would be if you took a secular view on the world. But I think that's wrong. I mean, it's a difficult book, but I think that's a wrong interpretation. You see, the teacher in Ecclesiastes never questions the existence of God, and he actually has a very strong ethical code as well, But what he questions is whether there can be any goodness or profit from doing the right thing. His entire point is to explore how the world is empty and futile even though you worship God and even though you live an ethical life. The world is full of beautiful gifts of God, which is something he emphasizes too. And yet, in God's sovereignty, they're all ultimately ground down by time and destroyed in the end. So even the best life possible in this world is marked by emptiness. And this was also the experience of so many of the prophets, wasn't it? Uh, Prophets like Isaiah, for instance, uh, that they sought to follow God faithfully and preached his message, but uh, only a few people listened. One of my favorite uh, Bible illustrations ever is by Gustave Doré, and it's a picture of Ezekiel, but it could be many prophets. And it's, it's one, Ezekiel is framed wonderfully on this kind of elevated uh, space, and he's in full preaching mode. And there's a, bu- a bunch of people in the bottom of the scene, but they're, none of them are listening. <laughs> none of them are even turned toward, they're just like, you know, ignoring him completely. He's like the crazy guy on the corner ranting about the end of the world. And I think that, he, that Dore just beautifully captures what so many prophets' ministry was like. And think about, though, the people that did listen, that small band of disciples who did repent of their sin and and sought to follow God. The stubborn waywardness of the rest of the people meant that they still had to undergo the suffering of attack by foreign nations and deportation into exile, just like everybody else. So, let's apply this point for a second. What about you? Where are the points of emptiness in your life? Sometimes they're there because of your sin, that's for sure, Um, because you're orienting your life around some kind of idol, and at some point you start to realize the emptiness of that, that is sucking all of the fullness and joy out of your life. But sometimes serving God can seem like it has no reward or that it brings emptiness. Sometimes serving God can make your life worse. 
at least in the short term, in some sorts of ways. Let me give you a couple examples. Imagine this. Imagine that you have, imagine there's a difficult person in your life. I'm sure this will be hard for many of you, but just imagine. <laughs> and now imagine that you really decide to make an effort. You say, I am going to love this difficult person, and I'm going to extend a gesture to them of grace and show God's love. And you do that, and they just throw it back in your face. And now here you are thinking, I was trying to do the right thing, and what did it get me? Or here's another situation. Imagine there needs to be some kind of conflict. You know, you don't want to start something, but you've realized that you need to speak the truth to somebody, but you want to do it in love. And so you spend a lot of time thinking about the best way to bring this issue up and do it in a loving way, and you try really, really hard, and they just blast you. And once again, it seems like <laughs> I tried really hard, and yet here I am. Where did it get me? Well, these experiences and others, I think, highlight a lot of what the Christian life is like a lot of the time. And I think the servant is a model of one thing we can do with these kinds of brokenness. We can bring them to God in lament. The servant doesn't just keep it inside. He doesn't just deal with it himself. He talks to God, very honestly and frankly. And that's something that we can do as well with the brokenness and emptiness in our lives. We can bring it to God, and we can ask God to address it. Okay, so that's the first point. The servant brings the emptiness in his life to God. But that's not all he does. Second point, the servant holds on to his faith. Alongside the servant's lament about the emptiness of his life, he also voices an expression of faith in God's promises. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. This is something we find in a lot of psalms of lament. The psalmist will explain in vivid detail how miserable his life is, but also have an expression of confidence in the Lord. In a sense, uh, this one verse, verse 4, is a whole lament psalm. And the servant's hope echoes the prophecy of Isaiah 40, 9 to 11, where this herald of good news going up on the high mountain announces that God is coming to Zion and his reward is with him. It's a promise that when God appears, he's going to set straight everything that's wrong. He's going to reward the downtrodden. And as Jesus would say years later, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, for your reward is great in heaven. And so even though it looks like all the servants' labor is futile from everything he can see, he still believes that God has a reward for him and that God will appear to vindicate him. Against everything that makes sense based on how we usually think or see, the servant believes that actually his work will turn out to be fulfilling and fruitful. This is a difficult posture to hold on to, isn't it? To lament honestly with God on the one hand, and yet also hold on to faith in God's promises with the other. There's really two ways to fall off the horse here. That's the right metaphor to use, I think, in this context. Uh, one way to fall off is just to pretend that everything is fine when we go through suffering, to project a false joy that can't really face up to the very real sorrows and sufferings of the world. And if you fall into this attitude, you won't really be able to help your friends very well when they suffer. You'll have this need to put a blame for their suffering on them, even if that's not really fair. Or you're going to 
feel like you have to push them to deny that their suffering is really that bad, to put a happy face on it just because you can't really handle sitting there and grieving with them. But there's also another way to fall off the horse. And that's the danger that in giving full vent to our suffering, we end up just sort of wallowing in despair. Uh, and because our experience makes it seem that God's promises have come untrue, because it seems that there's no reward for faithful labor, our belief that God has good things for us can be shaken. And this, too, will make us very little help to others in suffering. It may make us able to listen and affirm their suffering, which is a good way to start, but we'll have no hope in ourselves to bring to them, and we won't be much help to them in fanning the small spark of their faith in the situation. But the servant does manage to hold on to this balance. That's what's so remarkable about him. He holds on to faith in the midst of suffering. He believes that God will still give the good things he has promised. And that's why he's calling out to God in the first place. How does God respond to this call? It's not with immediate deliverance. But instead, God actually responds with more promises. God will honor the one who has been dishonored. The servant will do more than just restore God's people, Israel. The servant's going to bring a light to all the nations. Kings will stand up when he walks into the room and bow down before him. And in fact, we, also read, uh, we can also read the promise in verse 8 in a universal way. Instead of establishing the land, it might be establishing the earth. The picture that the servant is going to restore desolated inheritances throughout the world, bringing God's covenant to a much wider people than could ever have been imagined at the start. The Lord describes how the servant will lead this people as prisoners brought out of darkness, guiding them through the wilderness. In Isaiah 40, a highway had been leveled for God to come to Jerusalem. But now God himself prepares a highway for his people to come from every point of the compass. And the passage ends by breaking into song as the heavens, the earth, and the mountain, and all creation rejoices because God has comforted his afflicted people. One of the things I find striking about these promises is how focused they are on other people. What is the reward God promises the servant for persevering through the emptiness of his work? It's primarily the reward of helping others, both God's people and the nations. Yes, this will also come with honor and glory for the servant. He'll be vindicated before the kings of the nations. But by and large, the focus is on what the servant's work will mean for other people. It's their salvation which gives his work purpose and proves that it was not, not all futile after all. This is something I think that repeats in that other famous suffering servant song, Isaiah 52 to 53, where the servant bears the sins of the people that they might be forgiven. Let's stop and apply this point to ourselves a little bit. Living by faith can be very difficult, especially when you're really going through it. Uh, but knowing God's promises can help. I think that's one thing we get from this passage. Do you know God's promises for you? And, you know, maybe we know we're supposed to read and memorize the Bible, but why? Why would we do that? <laughs> I think there's several reasons, but one might be to strengthen our faith in God's promises. Uh, just reading words might not seem like a very powerful thing, but imagine if when you're in a time of trial, the thing that's floating up into your mind are the promises that God has given to you. 
I think this is something that can help us direct our Bible study and understand, like, what's the point? It's so that we can hold on, internalize these things that God is saying to us, and continue to believe that they're true even when everything around us is challenging it. Certainly something the servant is doing here. Okay, so the servant has lamented, and the servant has held on to his faith. But the third point, who who is the servant? Don't get ahead of me now. I know some of you have an idea. (laughs) But it's got to be a surprise. There's a lot of answers that don't really work. Uh, One possibility is King Cyrus, whom God is going to use in a special, he's called God's servant, and God's going to use him in a special way to fulfill his plan of restoring his people. But Cyrus is not the servant. He doesn't seem to have any particular special spiritual relationship with God. He doesn't even know that he's God's servant. Uh, And what's more, he doesn't really suffer in any kind of way. Okay, what about Isaiah himself? Some people have suggested that. After all, tradition says that Isaiah was martyred by being sawn in half. So he definitely suffers. But not all the details fit. We already saw Isaiah wasn't called from the womb. He was called as an adult. Okay, well, maybe the servant is Israel as a people personified. After all, he's called Israel in this passage. But that doesn't quite work out either because the servant uh, dies or suffers for the people. You know, he, he, there's a, the people are a separate entity that he is connected to in some way. Yes, he represents the people and sums up their experience in some way, but he is ultimately an individual. So who could he be? The fact is that there's no character in the Old Testament that really fits. We have to wait for the New Testament to do that. It's actually not until Jesus that we get someone who fully fulfills these passages. Surprise. Of course, Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 is more famous, I think. I've heard many sermons on that passage. But what does this passage, Isaiah 49, have to tell us about Jesus, if indeed he is the servant? Well, we see that Jesus experienced the emptiness and nothingness of this world. And that's true on some level, for starters, simply because he was truly human. Philippians 2.7 says that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by being born in the likeness of humans. The son's emptying doesn't mean that he stops being God or lays aside his divinity. It doesn't mean that he becomes any less God or turns off any of his divine attributes. Rather, it's because of the humanity that he adds to himself, that he becomes emptied. It's because this humanity is marked by nothingness, as we've seen in Isaiah. The like-nothing that characterizes all human beings characterizes the Son in his incarnation. The Son becomes like, like the little grasshoppers that we are in the flesh. But more than just becoming finite, which is already a kind of nothing, The son also experiences the frustrations and emptiness of life in a fallen world. He must humble himself even to death on a cross. And in that death, Jesus experienced the depths of what it felt like to work for nothing. Death on the cross was not a fitting reward for somebody who gave a life of faithful service to God and love to other people. From an earthly perspective, the cross cancels out the significance of all Jesus' work. The little band of disciples that he worked so hard to teach and lead have scattered, 
and the people he's supposed to save, Israel, have rejected him and turned against him. Hard to flip through the things that Isaiah 40 through 66 says is supposed to happen and think we're on track here. Of course, Jesus had God's promises to him, didn't he? God has spoken to him and said, you are my beloved son. He knew that God had promised not to abandon his Messiah, not to let his Holy One see corruption. But I don't think we should play down the emotional difficulty of Jesus' task. He was called to hold on to these promises by faith against the severest temptations of the devil to find another way out. And our passage today, where the servant cries out to God that his work has been for nothing, shows us that Jesus really did experience the mismatch between what he was feeling, what he could see and touch directly, and what he had to believe. He bore the full experience of human nothingness in his human will and mind on the cross. He had to wrestle with the temptation to doubt God's promises might be false. Jesus had to persevere through the experience of being forsaken by God. He knew what it was like to cry out to God and not receive an answer, at least not yet. Jesus experienced all this and he triumphed over it. He lamented his suffering to God, but he never gave up on the promises. He remained firm by faith, and with his last words, he commended his spirit into his father's care. The depths of human nothingness did not crush Jesus' faith. Being fully emptied out to the point of death on the cross did not stop Jesus from believing. And that's good news for us, especially as we wrestle with the emptiness we feel in our lives. Because Jesus persevered through the experience of nothingness, Jesus is actually able to save us from the emptiness in our lives. We often fail in this struggle, don't we? We often give in to despair or complaining or doubt. But Jesus has obeyed perfectly in our place. And he is the substitute who suffered for our sin. And what's more, because he's been tempted just like us, but only without sin, he is able to have sympathy for us and help us, as Hebrews tells us. We are the people mentioned in this passage who are, who are being led through the wilderness like sheep with a shepherd. And because of his suffering, Jesus is able to guide us through these long, empty passages of our lives. He brings us times of refreshing, even in the wilderness. And he will not lose any of his sheep, but safely guide them into his Father's kingdom. These opening verses of Isaiah 49 are Jesus telling us his story, witnessing to us about God's faithfulness in bringing him through death and resurrection. Jesus is talking to you. This is why he suffered, so that his words here in this passage might be a light to you and to all of his people and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that in Jesus, God himself enters into human nothingness by taking on a human form. And even more than that, by being humble to the point of death. And we praise you that Jesus' sacrifice was not for nothing, but that against anything that we can figure or understand, or calculate with our minds, you raised him from the dead. And you give us that resurrection hope this morning. 
for all of us, wherever we are, with whatever emptiness we're coping with, that in Christ we are made full. We thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name.